Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is Amy Weinfurter, and I am a Master's of Environmental Management candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I'm in the studio today with Dr. Cameron Wake. Dr. Wake is a research associate professor in climatology at the University of New Hampshire, where he leads a research program investigating regional climate change through the analysis of ice cores, instrumental data, and phenological records. His collaborative research on climate assessments in the northeastern United States has been shared with state and federal agencies and representatives, covered widely in the media, and cited as motivation for policy action. Dr. Wake, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Amy. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, if we could, I'd like to start out with a question about um, your research with ice cores. Um, your research involves using ice cores and other instrumental data to uncover the Earth's climate history. How does the Earth's climate past help us understand and predict the future impacts of global warming? Well, I think uh, ice cores really help uh, us as one uh, set of paleoclimatological records to really understand how the Earth system operates. And uh, one of the aspects that's very nice about ice cores is they're, they're high-fidelity records. We can actually look at changes from year to year to year uh, going back in time. And so uh, it's really uh, not possible to understand how climate might change in the future if we don't understand how the entire Earth system operates. And uh, we know from, from having studied this now for decades that it's a pretty complex system. It actually uh, responds in a, in a range of sort of dynamic and nonlinear and sometimes unpredictable ways. And so it's really by looking at the past that we've been able to, to understand much about that system. And that's not only ice cores, but that's a whole set of, of paleoclimate records. Um, uh, so that's, uh, uh, that's one piece. Uh, uh, one sort of example I could provide is that it's been very clear from the ice core record that during the last ice age, we saw a series of very rapid climate change events where we would go from an ice age-like climate to an interglacial or more modern-like climate in a relatively short period of time, less than a decade and, and probably in some cases more, uh, less than uh, two to three years. So that's uh, nothing that sort of other tools like uh, global climate models have really shown us, but we've seen that's how the Earth system has operated in the past. And so we're able to say that's a really that's a fundamental aspect of the system and really important in order to incorporate uh, into uh, models that actually project the future. What are those key thresholds uh, that uh, might might be crossed? Wonderful. Um, and you work across New England, Asia, and the Arctic. Uh, how did you come to focus on these regions, and how does this diversity of field sites inform your research? Um, um, that's a great question. Uh, so I, I really started out my glaciological research in the mountains of Central Asia. Uh, and so I was just very interested uh, in uh, initially the hydrology, the snow hydrology, and how it, it supplied uh, water to, you know, about a quarter to a third of the world's population. Uh, and so that interest in hydrology then morphs into an interest in how is it that climate has changed across this region, and then again, how might it change in the future under uh, different greenhouse gas emission scenarios. Uh, and from that, that work, uh, regional work in Asia, uh, uh, I actually developed a, a set of relationships with colleagues up at the Geological Survey of Canada and said, well, you know, why don't we extend this, this work into the Arctic? So uh, I was with the University of New Hampshire at the time, and we were involved in a very big project on the Greenland Ice Sheet, uh, uh, which really told us quite a bit about 
about sort of climate change across much of the Arctic, but we knew that there were regional differences and knew that we had to go to smaller ice caps. And so uh, that really drove sort of 20 years uh, of research across uh, across the Arctic uh, that most recently um, most recently through a set of ice cores that we recovered from Denali in uh, central Alaska. And then the New England piece was really just from living in New England. I was doing my research at the University of New Hampshire, and there was a group of us over a decade ago that said, well, how has climate changed in New England? And we began to realize that nobody had really explored that issue. We were off at the sort of far corners of the world uh, trying to understand climate change, and we didn't know what was going on in our backyard. So that was really driven much more by a personal interest. Uh, But I, I really developed that over the last decade because as I started talking to people about climate change in their backyard, they became far more interested in the topic than climate change in the Arctic or in Asia. Uh, so it's really been sort of three different reasons that's carried me to, uh, to three different areas. But the thread that really connects them all together is that I'm really interested in regional climate change, which is sort of a subset of looking at global climate change. Uh, to follow up on that, that question a little bit, Um, What have you found in terms of how New England is going to experience climate change maybe differently um, from the rest of the country or in ways that might impact its economy? Uh, more severely? Uh, so a great question. We've been looking at, at how climate has changed over the past 100 years and how it might change in the next 100 years across New England. And I'd say there's a, there's a couple of uh, a strong regional uh, features. The first is uh, we're just going to get hotter. And we're going to get hotter like the southeast United States is hotter today. So they're going to get hotter as well, but we're going to become, our summers are going to become much more uh, like they currently are in the southeast. And when I travel around and talk to people about this, it's, it's really the last thing they want to experience. They really like our wonderful summers that are, are not too hot, uh, just, you know, blue sky days and comfortable days and not too much air conditioning. Um, and you can see that, that we're already seeing that transition to having to use more and more air conditioning as we get more and more hot days. Um, another uh, uh, regional specific change is going to be uh, that we're really going to lose our winters in the future. And so uh, that comes down to we're going to see um, more snow falling as rain in the future as it warms up. Uh, we're probably going to see a loss uh, of a lot of our winter recreation sports, whether that's skiing, downhill, cross country, uh, snowmobiling. If you've lived in this area for the last few decades, there's far less opportunity to ski on our ponds in winter, uh, so a lot less uh, pond hockey, which is uh, really close to my heart. And I think that's, it's, it's part of the fiber and character of living in New England, is that we understand sort of the hardships of winter, but we get through it together and we've actually created ways to, to really uh, enjoy ourselves. And then uh, last but not least, um, I expect that we're going to see uh, a trend that's continued recently of bigger precipitation events across uh, much of the region. So we've already seen uh, more frequent large storms. Uh, That's falling on uh, our watersheds, which have been more developed over the course of the last uh, four to five decades. So it's resulting in bigger floods. And, you know, especially we saw the Mother's Day floods in in, uh, 2006 and the Patriots Day floods in in 2007. And then, uh, you know, additional flooding in March of 2010. Uh, we've seen what Irene did to Vermont. I mean, really significant impacts. And we just expect that's going to continue to occur in the future. Now, that, that, that's a double-edged sword. We have lots of floods. Uh, but one of the things that New England is going to have in the future is probably lots of fresh water. And so as you think about dealing with uh, the issue of climate change, 
I would argue that, that it's probably easier to adapt to a situation of figuring out how we protect ourselves from floods uh, than how it is that we figure out how to get fresh water. And so I think we're going to be water rich in the future. Uh, and, uh, and we just need to figure out how we, we adapt to the increase in flooding. Uh, speaking a little bit more about the adaptation side of things, uh, in addition to your research on climate history, you also direct Climate Solutions New England and work with New Hampshire Energy and Climate Collaborative. Um, both organizations focus on identifying and implementing mitigation and adaptation solutions. Um, and you talked a little bit on how you um, came to focus more on New England as a region. Um, and I'm curious if that was part of your um, switch to also focus more on um, the policy side of climate change or how you came to be involved uh, with these two organizations? Um, so it, 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 uh, it, it was a, an evolution over time. Uh, so initially the question was sort of how is climate change in New England? But it was also, uh, I think, a response um, to what little progress society has made on dealing with these issues. Uh, uh, we've understood this problem, uh, I would say, pretty clearly for at least two decades, and yet we've really done uh, very little sort of nationwide uh, to address it. There's certainly been uh, pockets of, of responses that have been very good, but, but overall, for the most part, we've chosen to ignore it and been the ostrich that, have, that has stuck our, our, uh, our head in the sand. Uh, so a, a part of it, as I began to focus on regional climate change, I also began to focus on why aren't we dealing with this problem? Um, and I realized it wasn't because we didn't have a scientific understanding of it, but that, that uh, first of all, that science wasn't being translated in a way that policymakers could understand. And uh, perhaps a little more deep-seated is that we in the scientific community realized it would take transformational change to deal with this issue. And that's a pretty hard sell to a broad population is that, uh, you know, we're saying, well, actually, you know, your lifestyle is not okay. We're going to have to change and to deal with this problem. And so as I realized we had to make some significant progress on this, on this challenge and we weren't, I began to explore ways that I could get uh, more involved into essentially helping solve the problem instead of studying the problem. I still keep a foot sort of pretty firmly in the research because I, I like to know, uh, you know, it's, I've, my career is, is, has been established on, on doing research, but I'm really fascinated by how we go about changing society to solve this problem. And as I said, there are these sort of uh, pockets a few in New Hampshire, uh, others around New England, sort of wonderful examples that now need to be replicated and, and scaled up. But it's really all around helping society really solve this, this challenge. And I think that New England, uh, because of our relatively you know, small area, our lack of any fossil fuel resources, um, and just a wealth of institutions of higher education, that we really should be innovating ourselves out of this problem. Uh, and one of the things that this um, organization, the New Hampshire Energy and Climate Collaborative, works on is the New Hampshire Climate Action Plan, which is a series of steps to help the region um, adapt to climate change. Um, I'm curious what has surprised you most about the process of implementing and tracking the progress this region has made and what you're most um, looking forward to um, seeing progress on in the next few years. Um, uh, perhaps the most surprising aspect is that uh, we've already begun to see significant reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, not only in New Hampshire, uh, but across all of New England. And so uh, essentially what we need to do is continue you know, growing our economy so there's opportunities for jobs in the region, but decoupling that economic growth from greenhouse gas emissions. And that's what we're beginning to see across the region. So that's really encouraging. Uh, uh, perhaps the, the more challenging part is uh, I'm not exactly sure why that 
that is happening, but I think the most part, it's a response to an increase in energy prices that started sort of in 2004 and 2005 and, and continued up to the recession. And then uh, sort of the recession has certainly had an impact on our, on our emissions. Um, uh, I, the other part that's surprising is that you know, every state in New England now has a climate action plan that clearly lays out a plan that increases energy efficiency and increases the use of renewable resources, uh, protects our natural resources, and significantly reduces uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, but outside of, uh, of sort of a few major policy changes, uh, for example, Massachusetts has passed the Global Warming Act, where they've now put that, those reductions into law, is that we are not... Um, operating as an integrated region to figure out how to actually do this. So the efforts remain uh, piecemeal. They remain fragmented. Uh, there's some great examples uh, of success, but there's, I would say there's many more of uh, plans that are not being implemented at all. So I, I think the, the long and the short of it is, is we need far more effort on the implementation side. Um, and my final comment on this front is that I think it's critical for people to understand that government cannot solve this problem for us. Government has a role to play, but not the sole role. That really, the challenge is, is large enough and significant enough that really it's every sector of society uh, in every aspect of our lives. So as individuals, as families, as community members, as employees, um, uh, we really need to act across all of those sectors in order to uh, really solve this problem. And once again, I think that we in New England sort of have the innovation and the frugality and the gumption to make it happen. It's just time for us to actually sort of do it. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I don't think our state governments are really going to push us hard enough to do it. So it's time, I would argue, for sort of citizens to say it's, it's time for this change. Let's make it happen. Uh, part of that change uh, obviously depends on the collaboration between and partnerships between scientists, as you mentioned, policymakers, the private sector, and individual citizens. Um, and you touched a little bit on the, the need for citizens to drive the change. I'm curious if you wouldn't mind expanding on how you see um, maybe science and policymakers and the private sector sharing information and where more collaboration and conversation might be really helpful um, in, in getting to a solution. Uh, I think it has to... It has it has to happen across many different scales. Um, I, I don't think there's any uh, silver bullet response here. I don't think, you know, we can get a blue ribbon panel of climate scientists who go and talk to state governors to make this happen. Um, uh, one of the things where I've seen the most success is in uh, groups of uh, scientists working with uh, municipal planners and regional planners and resource managers and representatives from state environmental agencies and then representatives from federal agencies like NOAA and EPA coming together around a table to actually focus on where municipalities are most vulnerable and how it is uh, we can help those municipalities uh, build their resilience. And so it, it's a different type of approach is it's not sort of government coming in and saying you need to do this, whereas it's a discussion saying, you know, what have you suffered from? What are you likely to suffer from in the future? And how can we help reduce your vulnerability? So I think that's really important. So I would argue that sort of every region needs these, uh, needs these groups. And, and the issues that are faced in coastal communities are different from uh, issues that might be faced in an inland community. So the Vermont flooding is different from, you know, the New Jersey uh, flooding that we saw. 
so that's uh, one, uh, uh, one area. I also think uh, I'd really like to see uh, scientists engage much more with community partners in helping explore what the key questions are so that we can then engage in, in finding solutions uh, in a collaborative way. Um, I don't think this is an issue where science can come in and say, hey, this is what you need to do, because uh, we really need those uh, people on the ground who are going to implement to actually uh, buy into the whole effort. And I think we do that by bringing them in early. Um, in your in your conversations um, with with key stakeholders working on some of these issues, um, have you found um, you touched on some of them? But have you found any effective strategies for um, initiating conversations about global warming, given some of the political con- political controversy surrounding this issue? Um, and especially in New England, have you noticed any shifts in the discourse, particularly after the impacts of um, Hurricane Sandy? Uh, So that's a great question. I'll I'll actually go back to before Hurricane Sandy, and and we suffered a a couple of devastating floods, the Patriot's Day storm and the Mother's Day storm in southern New England. And after that occurred, um, uh, we actually got together uh, with a a group of of individuals representing sort of these these different institutions that I mentioned uh, before. And we decided that we weren't going to go in and talk to communities about climate change. So we weren't going to lead with Cameron Wake, the climate scientist. Uh, but rather what we would go and do is ask them about what their experience was in the flood and how we might g- work together to actually explore where they're vulnerable and how w- we uh, as academics and representatives of, of uh, state and federal agencies might be able to help them. And so that really changed the dynamic in that if you, we, we took the issue of climate change off the table uh, and we had superb discussions with a whole set of emergency managers, which by and large tend to be organizations that have lots of conservative thinking people in them. You know, they're preparing for emergencies. Um, And so just that change of not saying, you know, this is climate change, you know, you need to understand the science, we need to change all of a sudden, is saying, what are you suffering from and how can we help you? completely changed the nature of the discussion for us. And once we saw the, re- the positive response, we really have taken that model and built upon it. So uh, we run six to eight workshops a year, and those workshops are not focused on talking head experts. They're focused on we'll introduce a topic, and then we'll have a significant community discussion. And we've even brought um, clicker responses into this. So we'll get 40 or 50 people, and we'll come up with a series of questions, and they all respond so we can get everybody's input. And we've just seen a real change in this community in that, in that it's not us talking at them, but we are engaging in a discussion with them. And uh, I think it's made a world of difference. And now we're developing those those key relationships that we're going to need to make the difficult decisions that are that are certainly coming on how we make our communities more resilient. Uh, and that kind of leads into um, a little bit the what's sometimes framed as a tension between adaptation and mitigation, um, especially for resource type communities that may feel like they have to make a choice. Uh, so I'm curious, how do you see the relationship between these two activities, and do you think this is an accurate tension or dichotomy? Or um, I I do not think it's an <laughs> it's an accurate tension. Um, uh, first and foremost, uh, reducing the emissions of greenhouse gases globally is the most important adapt- adaptation strategy we can employ, because the less that we emit to the atmosphere, the less climate change we need to adapt to. Uh, now it it does become a bit of a tension in that that's a global effort, and then we need to adapt on local communities. But I also don't think they're, they're separate because actually in the big picture, they're both about saving money. 
So uh, we import all of our fossil fuel to New England. So it's, it's every time we spend a dollar on a gallon of gasoline, most of that money, 90 to 95 cents of it, leaves our economy. It's not really good for jobs. We're not promoting energy security. Um, and so becoming uh, a region that is much more energy efficient uh, and that actually generates uh, what energy it does need from more renewable sources like solar, like wind, uh, like geothermal, like wave action, like biomass – actually makes sense for our economy. And I think something we can do, if we were really interested in employing lots of people and providing lots of jobs, we would start down that pathway uh, tomorrow. And I, I, I put adaptation in the same framework because we just cannot continue to spend the millions, hundreds of millions of dollars a year that we now do on sort of these disruptive weather events that cause dramatic changes. And you, you can go through the list of Sandy and Irene and uh, uh, October 2011 that people call Snowmageddon and the floods in 2010 and the floods in 2007 and 2006. These are costing our communities uh, real uh, resources, you know, and, and in some cases uh, leading to, um, uh, to, to uh, uh, deaths of, of our, our citizens. Um, and so adapting is actually also a way to save our communities money. Now, acknowledge both the mitigation and adaptation efforts require investments of money. And where that money is going to come from, I would say, is a significant question. And I'd really like to see new instruments that, in fact, are being developed, but I'd like to see more of them where sort of private capital across New England, instead of going to the stock market, could actually invest in our communities. Because ultimately, both becoming energy secure, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, becoming more energy efficient, and building more resilient communities is going to save our communities money, which means that if you invest in it up front, you should be able to get a good rate of return. But you're not just investing your money solely for the rate of your return. You're actually investing it in to make your community a better place. So uh, for me, adaptation and mitigation are actually fundamentally integrated, and we need to consider integrated strategies to go about uh, uh, addressing those. And last but not least, those are going to vary regionally, both how we reduce our emissions, how we become more energy efficient, and how we go about adapting. So uh, I really think that these decisions and the path that we take need to be developed by sort of municipalities and regions and not dictated by the federal government. Uh, I guess to follow up on that, um, you talked a little bit about sort of the financial infrastructure that would help encourage um, this movement. Is there Are there any particular um, additional industries or activities um, in terms of maybe energy generation that you think are especially promising for New England um, or that you've, you've seen some promising activity on? Um, uh, so I, I think there's several. Uh, the first is... Uh, I would argue that we should be heating our water with the sun. Every building that gets put put up should have uh, solar hot water on it. And we all know that that's not going to work year-round in New England. But if it works for nine months a year, eight months a year, that's going to be a really good investment. So even though we're not Arizona, I think uh, that solar hot water makes a difference. And in fact, I would argue that uh, the same is true for solar PV. We can't always use that, but it would be really beneficial to have that on our on our buildings. Um, when you think about the biggest uh, draw on our energy grid, our electricity uh, right now, it occurs in summertime during the hottest days of the year. Those hottest days of the year 
generally don't have any clouds with tons of solar radiation. So I think that we could have a policy of actually meeting that increased demand for electricity to run all our air conditioning on hot days through solar PV. And given the marginal cost of electricity on those three to four to five to eight hot days that we have, it would make sense and likely pay for the investment. So I'd like to see us do that. I think there's tremendous promise for uh, wave energy. It's been, we've been talking about it for 20 years. Engineers have been working on it, but we haven't really uh, figured it out yet. Um, I think, you know, given our really lengthy coast and the amount of wave action, I see a lot more people surfing uh, than, uh, than I did when I first came here 25 years ago. Uh, so I think there's real potential there. Uh, geothermal as well. Uh, I think for new construction, uh, geothermal makes some sense. We just don't want to tap all our groundwater, so we begin to sort of uh, overburden uh, that system. I think there's also uh, better ways that we can use our biomass. We've got a lot of, uh, of biomass plants now generating electricity, but that's a relatively inefficient way to use uh, wood. Using wood for thermal energy is at least twice, if not three times, more efficient than that. Uh, so there are efforts across uh, uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine uh, to do more with uh, wood pellet stoves for both heating individual homes or, or uh, uh, regional heating systems. Um, and then there's the promise of you know, cellulosic ethanol, so getting ethanol from wood uh, without the tremendous energy that we have to, to use now to get it from corn. Um, uh, and then uh, there's a tremendous wind resource that we have. Uh, there's certainly been controversy for Cape Wind uh, off the coast of Massachusetts, uh, as well as up in New Hampshire and, and Vermont and Maine of people not wanting sort of big industrial production of energy in their backyard. But I think we need to have a very serious discussion in New England of, you know, what is all that fossil fuel that we're importing into the region doing? So I think uh, we need to decide where we want wind and where we don't want wind. We have to have a regional discussion about that, not just a state-by-state -state effort. And then... Uh, uh, I think I, I'd like to see uh, the expansion of both uh, onshore wind with, you know, a portion of those profits going to those communities that are impacted by those wind turbines. And then a tremendous opportunity, and Maine is really pursuing this in a big way, is offshore wind. Uh, more energy probably than uh, New England can use if we can figure out how to, how to get those floating offshore wind turbines. So I, I would uh, argue that the, uh, the future is bright for renewable energy. And then last but not least, we have a lot of really... Uh, drafty, energy-inefficient buildings. And so we might not think of energy efficiency as a source of renewable energy, but we could actually easily uh, reduce in half the amount of energy we use to heat and, and power our, our buildings. And that really needs to be pursued in a significant way. And again, all, everything I've mentioned requires significant investment, but there's opportunities there because that investment's going to pay off. Uh, when you mentioned um, sort of investing in, in new infrastructure, um, made me realize New England and um, California are typically um, portrayed as sort of the regional leaders in a lot of strategies. Um, and then there's also activity, obviously, overseas. Um, what do you see as the potential or um, some of the benefits and drawbacks um, about the current way different regions share technology, share um, best practices, um, especially if they have a monetary value? Um, and how does that play into developing the kind of solutions you mentioned? Well, that's a great question. I hadn't hadn't thought much about that. It's f from a technological perspective, it, it seems that you know much of the technology that that eventually gets um, distributed is actually done so by companies, sort of you mm -hmm. know outside of of uh, government and outside of uh, of even you know academia and, and research labs. Um, uh, and you know we're seeing uh, we're seeing the rise of of uh, solar production in in China and uh, production of wind energy um, in India. So um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess that the, the, 
what I would say is that what I'd love to see is a much sharper and stronger focus on solving this problem, which would require much more sharing. Um, you know, we've got a, a pretty interesting regional greenhouse gas initiative that's working to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the utility sector across the Northeast. And, and it's a, a system that's working reasonably well. And we really thought there would be other areas that, that develop this. Uh, there is an effort now on, on the West Coast involving Canada uh, to go down this pathway. Um, but I don't know that we're sort of sharing the lessons learned as well as we could. Uh, and I guess to, to maybe take a step back, <laughs> um, studying climate change over, um, you know, um, the past couple couple years, um, there have been some pretty um, pretty groundbreaking changes, both in, in terms of the weather systems and in terms of um, its traction in the public media. Is there any one thing that's um, jumped out at you or surprised you the most, um, either on the side of the research or the side of the policy? Um. Uh, well, so let's start off with the research. Uh, I think I, there's um, the thing that strikes me the most is that uh, climate scientists, uh, I would say the, uh, the projections that we've made over the course of the last 20 years have been relatively conservative. And we have uh, underestimated the rate of change in the Earth system. So in fact, climate is changing more dramatically than we had projected it, it would. And the, the, the classic example of this is uh, the significant reduction in Arctic sea ice. So back in 2005, nobody was predicting how dramatic and how quick the loss of Arctic sea ice would be. Uh, and and it's, been, it's been really quick, and it took the scientific uh, world by, uh, by storm. And uh, so it, what's interesting is the, the climate deniers out there say, well, it, you know, it comes back in winter, so everything's all right. And in fact, we've even heard that the 2013 has been the rec a recovery over the very low values we saw in 2012. Uh, but Arctic sea ice is on its deathbed. We know that. And it's likely going to disappear, you know, in the next decade or two at the end of the summer. It will come back in winter. Uh, but, you know, in, in summertime, when it's light in the Arctic and the sun is shining and you don't have that white surface up there that reflects incoming solar radiation, so that dark ocean water is absorbing all that incoming solar radiation, causing uh, really this vicious cycle of, of enhanced loss of Arctic sea ice. So that's one big change. Um, the other is uh, uh, really, in, in a more local sense, the amount of flooding that we've experienced in New England has been extraordinary. It's not something you would ever wish upon any region. Uh, there's been a lot of pain and suffering associated with it, but it is, it is worse than anything we projected uh, back in the 1990s. You know, we, we certainly saw that there would be bigger precipitation events, but no idea that we would see so many in such a, a, a short period of time. Uh, on the policy front, the, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, I think, was a, was a big, uh, a, a really big uh, success. Um, but overall, on the policy front, sort of the lack of uh, action at the federal level. And the one thing uh, that we really need at the federal level is a price on carbon. I, I'm convinced we just, we cannot solve this problem through altruistically asking people to, you know, turn their light switches off. We really need uh, to have a price on carbon. And while I initially thought a, a cap and trade was a good idea, I think the, the investment infrastructure that requires for carbon is just way too large. And after the economic recession in 2008, I just don't see the need to, to reward you know, Wall Street investment banks with more opportunities to make money. Um, 
I use my credit card far less than I ever used to because I, I just don't think that, uh, that they're working for the dollars that they earn. And so uh, I really think, as actually several Republicans across the country have suggested, that we need to think seriously about a, uh, a revenue-neutral carbon tax. So if, if you talk to, to conservatives and libertarians, they, they will tell you very clearly that uh, what you need to do is tax things you don't want. So why do we tax income and why do we tax profit what we should be taxing is alcohol and tobacco and carbon because we don't want carbon in the atmosphere. And so the, the, the very important part of that statement as well is a revenue neutral. So it's not about growing government. What it's about is actually uh, not, uh, not taxing property or income or profit as much or zero and actually having a carbon tax so that people have a price signal so they can use less carbon so those investments in renewable energy and energy efficiency make sense. Uh, but we balance uh, the federal budget through taxing carbon, uh, not raising more uh, revenue. And so uh, I think that that is a, a, a policy solution that is going to be really difficult, uh, but one that we need before we can really tackle this problem. And that seems like um, a good way to seek into a question um, about um, the New Hampshire Energy and Climate's um, social media presence, um, on which you note that you strive to be optimistic about the future of the planet. Um, I was wondering if, if you might, um, if we could end about talking both about um, the importance of staying positive and what specifically feeds your own optimism. Um, uh, I am just daily impressed with human innovation. Uh, humans are, are amazing uh, beings. And why, while we don't always uh, uh, use that innovation in positive ways, uh, I, I do see it daily. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm also uh, originally from Canada, came to this country uh, to, to do my, my PhD research and ended up staying. And uh, I know that, that this nation is at its greatest when it's faced with a grand challenge. And uh, we just need to have that grand challenge laid out in front of us in, uh, in uh, very clear terms. But I think once it is laid out that we will solve this problem relatively quickly and we will uh, regain our place uh, sort of in global politics as a leader and a country uh, that made this happen. Um, uh, so I, I think that's really what uh, makes me uh, optimistic is that uh, we actually have uh, the, the, the pieces, although fragmented, uh, to solve this problem. And what we really need to do is just uh, put it together. And while there's a daily and weekly and monthly grind to make that happen, um, I, I expect that 20 to 30 years from now, we will be looking back saying, uh, why did we take so long to act? But thank God uh, we eventually did. And I also think uh, the, the other part that makes me optimistic is... Uh, individuals, families, uh, parents fundamentally want their children to have better lives than they've had. And right now, I think we're headed for a situation where that's not going to be true. And once parents actually realize that, they are going to act very differently. And so that message isn't like getting through clearly, uh, but I think it's starting to. And I think uh, once again, when, once parents really fully realize this, that we are going to act and act quickly uh, to solve this problem. So uh, uh, some would call me naive, but I do remain uh, an eternal optimist. You know, the other part to that is uh, the other option isn't so good. That's true, too. <laughs> um, well, that seems like a good place to end it. Dr. Wake, thank you so much for joining us today um, and for visiting New Haven. <laughs> My pleasure, Amy. Thanks for having me.